Um, we're going to get into God's Word now. So uh, why aren't the uh, ushers, they're already with Bibles in their hands. If you guys need a Bible, raise your hand. They would love to get you a Bible. And uh, I'm going to pray. And then uh, we're going to begin to take a look at a couple passages of Scripture. We've been in a series. The past two weeks is the last week for this. Uh, we've been looking at this uh, larger subject of Jesus building his church. And we've been really kind of asking this bigger, larger question, like, what is God up to in this world? And more importantly, how do we partner with that? How do we become a part of what God is up to? How do we become a church that faithfully represents what God expects, or what God desires within a church community. So we've been basically looking at this subject. Number one, we've been looking at two weeks ago, we looked at the subject of gathering together and what it means and why Sunday morning is such an important part of what we do. It's not the only thing that we do as a church. We gather together for the purpose of worship, singing songs, uh, devoting a heart and a mind, our energy to learning and studying scripture, to be trained as disciples of Jesus. That's what Sunday does. Uh, Secondly, we saw last week that we are a community of people that uh, grows together in community, which means Sunday morning serves a purpose. It has a role in our lives. It's not the only thing that we do as a church, but it's not less than that that we do as a church. That uh, there are certain things that Sunday mornings offer that small groups simply do not offer, but vice versa. There are certain things that small groups offer that Sunday morning cannot offer. For example, like intimacy. Or example, you can come to church on a Sunday morning and be totally anonymous, not have to say hi to someone. For some of you, you're like, you're cool with that. I do actually talk with people once in a while, from time to time, and they're like, I like big churches because I can slip in and be anonymous. I'm like, you are a coward. I don't say that to their face, but in my mind, I'm like, you, 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 you want to run. Why run? Be known. Be somebody that is known by God's people. That's where we grow. So what we like to say is that it's important. Sunday morning is important. Small groups are important. Today, what we're going to be taking a look at is really the subject of going together into this world, and we use the word mission or being on mission. And what I would suggest as we jump into looking at this, all three of these elements uh, are what God's up to in this world. And so therefore, because this is what God's doing in this world, I would say for you to be a fully uh, acclimated, growing, maturing uh, follower of Jesus, a disciple, all three of these things should be part of your life. In other words, if all you're doing is going to church on Sunday morning, not involved in community, and not living intentionally on mission, whatever that means, we'll look at that in a moment, then I would say there are areas of your life that you are missing out on the blessing of God. I would also say that if all you're doing is part of a small group of people that you have hand-selected, and you do not find yourself part of a regular worshiping community or body of people on a larger basis or you're not committed to the mission of God, then I would say you also are missing out on certain key elements where you will grow as a follower of Jesus. So we can kind of break down all of these and say, I would suggest that all three of these things should be a part of the actual fabric of what your life as a follower of Jesus should look like. Gathering together on Sundays is a large gathering. Worshiping together is a large community. Uh, being fed God's word within a large context. Also, secondarily, gathering together in a smaller context where you can use your gifts together and grow as a community. And then thirdly, this idea of mission. What does it look like to be engaged in mission? Because all of these things we see that God is up to in this world, and God's inviting us always to be part of what he's doing within the context of this type of ministry. So with that being said, I want to read two passages so you guys can open up if you want to. Matthew chapter 5 will be the first passage we'll look at, and then later on we will then move on into Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 5 through 6, and a few other ones 
after that. But why don't we um, jump into Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. I'll read that, and then we'll pray, then we'll begin to jump in and hopefully make some sense of what it looks like to actually be a community of people that goes together into this world on a mission, whatever that means. So Matthew chapter 13, verse uh, 5, verses 13 to 16 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light everywhere in the house. Verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word that is uh, instruction to us. It reveals to us, God, elements and areas of who we are. So, God, I pray that we would receive this morning with open hearts. God, as we pray so often that our hearts would be like soil that has been softened and opened. God, that there have been places that, have been, uh, that, that would have been readied so that your word, like a seed, would land and then begin to bear forth fruit in our lives. And God, we want more than anything than just simply understanding information that, God, your word would begin to transform and reshape us um, as followers of Jesus as to what it looks like to not only grow together in the context of community, but also, Lord, how to really go to all this world to demonstrate, to show forth uh, the beauty of Jesus through the gospel. So we commit this time in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the subject that, first of all, Jesus says with regard to this commonly known passage uh, where he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Those are phrases that in a lot of ways, if you've been around any Christian circles for any length of time, you've heard these before. Um, But what exactly is Jesus referring to? What is he talking about? There's a scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. Uh, he writes this. He does a good job at kind of articulating this. I'll just kind of read what he has to say, and then I'll make a few comments on it. So next slide, he says this. He says, Jesus is calling the Israel of his day to be Israel indeed. What he says here can now be applied to all Christians. God had called Israel to be the salt of the earth, but Israel, behaving like everyone else, with its power politics, its factional squabbles, and its militant revolutions, how could God keep the world uh, from going bad the main function of salt in the ancient world. If Israel, his chosen quote-unquote salt, had lost its distinctive taste. In other words, the idea that he's basically conveying is that Israel had a unique purpose. Um, This is what oftentimes scholars would describe in a Bible reading passage, that this is an indicative. That's that's what's basically being described here. It's It's indicating, Jesus is indicating something about the status or the nature of who these people are. So in other words, when Jesus comes to them and says, you guys are the salt of the earth, you guys are the light of the world, he's not saying, if you do X, Y, and Z, this is what will happen. He's not saying, in potential, this is what you might become. He's saying, this is who you are. This is indicative of who you are. And he's referring, obviously, first and foremost, to the people of Israel in his day. And then, as he points out, well, that we would do well to identify that if you're a follower of Jesus, this is who you are. So... Oftentimes, when we forget this, what an indicative is, is it's basically a statement of fact as to who you are. And so typically, the way that oftentimes Christians live is we either live in ignorance of this fact, or we live in denial of it. 
I mean, if we live in denial of it, it's basically saying, I don't want to be the salt of the earth. I don't want to be the light of the world. Uh, ignorance is, I had no idea. I am the salt of the earth, or I am the light of the world. I, I'm, I'm, not under, I'm not aware of that. I didn't know that my life has that level of significance, or that my life has that level of uh, ability to bring forth some sort of um, potential change or, or light or help or healing to other people around me. So let, let me just be as clear with you as I can on this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, it's not a matter of you might be salt of the earth. No, the, the fact is you are the salt of the earth. You are, you are the light of the world. You, you bear testimony of the goodness of God. Now the question is, is not whether or not you are, but how effective are we? That's the main point that Jesus is saying. He says, now if you are the salt of the earth, but you're not doing this, then what, what, what purpose is there? Again, there's all sorts of questions as to what exactly that means in terms of losing a savior and whatnot. But the point that I just want to emphasize is that this isn't indicative. So you are either living in denial of that or you are living in ignorance of that. My hope would be that there would be at least some sort of moving or movement from ignorance over to embrace. That you as a follower of Jesus would be like, ah, this is me. I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. Like how, then the question that now migrates in your, in your reality of, of how do you demonstrate that? How well are you at demonstrating that within this world? That becomes the poignant question. Okay, next slide. It goes on to say within this context here. He says, in the same way, God had called Israel to be the light of the world. And points to Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. He says, but what if the people called to be light bearers had become part of the darkness? That was Jesus' warning and also his challenge. So it's kind of a two-edged sword. On the one hand, Jesus is warning them. He says, look, be careful because this light that you bear could be hidden, could be obscured. The saltiness that you are called to by way of preservation, and typically people say that salt can either be like for flavoring, but for the most part in the ancient world, it was about a preservative. It was a way in which they would take meat, and they would put it in these, uh, uh, sometimes these rocks that had salt formations in them, and the whole idea would be that it would preserve it. Um, Yes, they may have used it as flavoring, kind of like we do today, but for the most part, it was, it was about preservation. In our modern world, we think about salt, we think about like, oh, truffle salt, or, you know, low sodium salt, or any type of other salt in our modern day context, like lemon salt, you know, that's not at all what they were thinking about. They would have been thinking specifically about preservation, something that is tossed into the world as a means of preserving something from rottenness or decay. And she's saying, this is who you guys are. Be those that bear the light. So this, again, this is not only a warning of what could happen that if you are not intentional about living according to this, but it's also a challenge to recognize it. This is our calling. This is what we're called to. How well am I living as salt of the earth and light within this world? So that being said, we begin to kind of think about this bigger question because in reality, this is what Jesus is saying, is that this is who you are. So the church followers of Jesus, a community of people that have been called out of this world of darkness and decay are called to live in a different way than the rest of society and the world at large around them. Now, a lot of ways, a lot of times, uh, this becomes a challenge for a lot of us. So the question for us then becomes, how do we do this well? Now, historically, a lot of times what Christians have done is one of two things. On the one hand, I would say Christians have this tendency of what I would describe as assimilation, 
We become assimilated into the culture at large around us. We become like the culture. We act like the culture. We look like the culture. We think like the culture. Whatever is common or in pop culture at large, that's become what, that becomes what we mirror in our own ethics, our sexuality, our ideas, our marriages, our business protocols, all these other things. And we become more of a reflection of culture at large than the heart of God. That's what I would describe as assimilation. The flip side is I would describe it as, the alternate example would be what I would describe as maybe like um, alienation, meaning we pull ourselves away from culture and society, we run from it, we homeschool our kids, we raise pit bulls, we move very, 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 very far from society and culture at large, we make our wives churn butter, we do all these things for the most part to pull away from society and culture at large because it's all wicked and bad and evil and go into hell very quickly. And so we will remove ourselves, alienate ourselves entirely from culture because it's bad. And I would suggest uh, it's very difficult to be an example in darkness when you are not even around darkness. In fact, it's impossible because you have alienated yourself from the very people that need light. So on the one hand, there's assimilation, Bad. On the other hand, is alienation bad? Both are bad. So the question is, how do we navigate between the two? And I would suggest this is where mission comes into play. So for example, at the end of uh, the book of John, Jesus says to disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you into this world. The, the big idea that Jesus is passing along to his followers, his disciples, is look, the Father sent me, God sent me into this world for a purpose, for a mission. In fact, the word sent that Jesus uses, uh, later the Bible would be translated into Latin, and this basically became the, the popular uh, language that people had known the Bible for for a very long time. The word that was actually translated from sent, uh, the Greek, whatever Greek word that was used there, into the Latin is the word missio. We get the English word mission from. So the idea of Jesus saying, look, the Father sent me on a mission, now I'm sending you on a mission into this world. As the Father sent me, so you go into this world. So the question is, did Jesus assimilate to the popular cultural narratives of his day? No. Did Jesus abandon it all entirely and alienate himself from the culture or society at large? No. Jesus was right smack in the middle of it. Totally holy, yet totally distinct and different from the culture at large, yet totally connected to the broken, hurting world around him. So the question then becomes, how does God want us to live within the culture? We get a clue there. As the Father sent Jesus... So the Father now sends us into the world to live. That's where I would say live on mission. So let's bring a little bit more sharper clarity in terms of what do we mean by this. And this is where we kind of got to get some better, I think, other ways to think about this, broader ways to think about this. So why don't you turn your Bibles real quick to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. It's in the Old Testament. It's a very, very long book. So chances are if you just open randomly up anywhere in the Old Testament, uh, there's a pretty good chance you'll probably hit Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 29, again, if you have no idea where that's at, don't be afraid to use the index. We will not judge you because it's okay. It's totally fine. But there you go. Read that. Jeremiah chapter 29. So what I want to do is I want to read this little passage here, and then I will make some comments with regard to it. So backstory as to what's happening here. So the people of Israel are now in this, what we would call exile. They, are, they were once inhabitants of the land of what we would call uh, Palestine or Israel. Uh, Jerusalem was their capital. But the people of Israel, again, rather than being lights and rather than being salt, they became like the culture and societies at large around them. So rather than 
being a distinct people, worshiping Yahweh, uh, uh, loving God, loving their neighbor. They became a culture that basically, for the most part, represented and reflected the narrative and the cultural values of Egypt, of other broken, messed up, ruined super empires. So rather than being this nation that showed charity and justice and kindness and followed the laws of Yahweh, they basically abandoned all those things. So what they did is that rather than embracing their identity, they abandoned their identity. And so what God says, I'm going to send you away into exile. You've lost your land, but not forever because you'll come back into the land. But for now, there's a season in which you will be taken out of your land and you'll be taken out of your land by the way of a super militaristic Super, uh, superpower called Babylon. So Babylon comes in. We know the historical books and records of this, that they take them away. They remove them from the land of Israel. And now they're far, far away in another distant land. And everything that was once common and familiar and known to them, they no longer have. So imagine living in your house and somehow either from Mexico or Canada, they come down or come up and they remove you from your land, from what you call home, and they take you back down to either Juarez or somewhere like in Saskatchewan, and you are very, very far from home, everything is unfamiliar to you, and you're living with a bunch of people that you, you don't know. The question is, how do you maintain your faithfulness or fidelity to God in a very foreign territory? Even when you couldn't do it in your own land, you still can be faithful. This becomes the question that the Jews are wrestling with. How do we maintain our covenantal identity as God's people in a land that's really far away? One of the great uh, books that kind of accompanies this is, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel. Daniel, this is the very same time of Daniel, in fact, maybe towards the end. Daniel, if you're familiar with this story, he was a leader in the Babylonian courts. Uh, Daniel is almost this incredible story of, of really the playing out of someone that is able to be faithful to God uh, without selling out, without assimilating culture at large, without running away and alienating themselves. Because Daniel is, is literally working for the king, and yet Daniel is very distinct in the way he acts from the king and the rest of his subjects. So the people of Israel are now wrestling with this question. How do we do this? How do we maintain covenantal faithfulness to God in a land that's very hostile towards God. So here's what Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 5 through 6 says. God speaks to Jeremiah the prophet and here's what he describes. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. So he's addressing all these people whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then God goes on to say and gives these instructions. So listen to the instruction that God gives to these people that are in a foreign land, far away from home, wondering, are we ever going to go home? How long are we going to be in Jerusalem or in Babylon? How long are we going to be away from our home? God goes on and says, here's what I want you to do. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take, uh, he says, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. In its welfare, uh, you will find your welfare. In other words, the word that's used for welfare could also be the word peace. In its peace, seek the peace of the city. Some of you might be, if you're paying attention to this story, you're like, wait a minute. I thought the Babylonians were the people of Israel's enemy. Yes, correct. It's absolutely correct. There's this hostility. So you can ask the question, is there hostility between Babylonians and Jews? For sure. Without question. So what is God asking them to do? Oh, he's asking them to bless the, their enemies. That seems like a strange narrative, but that's exactly what God's asking them to do. He says, because as you bless, 
your enemies, as you seek the peace of those who have uh, wronged you, there will be a blessing in it for yourself. So again, this is not abandonment. This is not assimilation. God's not saying become Babylonian now. God is not saying run away and flee Babylon in the suburbs of the Babylonian wilderness. God's saying live in the midst of the city, have kids just like everybody else, build businesses, raise you know, kill, uh, children, uh, plant gardens. In other words, make a life in the midst of this nation which has gone rogue. It's fascinating. This is, liter- this is mission. God's literally sent them. So what I want to do is I want to point out four things I think that will help us to think about what it looks like to live on mission. Because in some ways, this is exactly what God is calling the people of Israel to do. To maintain their covenantal relationship with Yahweh in the midst of a foreign land. Now, one more thing before I jump into making some assessments here. Um, in the book of Peter, um, the New Testament writer Peter, Peter actually writes to the Christians and he actually describes them as, as you guys are exiles, so he actually uses his language of exile. It's exilic language. And the idea is to like, be a hyperlink to draw you all the way back to what we would call, what we just read here, the exile of the people of Israel. So Peter writes to a group of Christians, and he wants them to think, in the same way that you guys are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and yet somehow uniquely connected to Jesus, in other words, you are followers of Jesus in the midst of hostile territory, Live as exiles. So I think it would be safe to say, you and I, we are exiles for the name of Jesus here on the Central Coast. How do we live? How do we maintain, not, I mean, our covenantal identity, but I mean, more so like our baptismal identity. If we've been baptized into Christ, meaning we no longer live, it's Christ that lives in us. How do we maintain that baptismal identity? Through assimilation? No. Through abandonment? Alienation? No. Mission. That's, that's the way. So let's make some observations and then uh, wrap this up. Number one, I think in order to do this well, uh, what God basically says, first of all, is we have to uh, adopt what I would describe as an attitude of sentness. I don't even think sentness is a word. I made it up. You're welcome. And, uh, but we have to maintain an attitude of sentness. Now, what do I mean by that? So take a look at three different times. And again, there's probably others, but these are three distinct times in which God uh, describes that. So, so again, in contrast, this is not that Israel just randomly ends up on the doorstep of Babylon. This is not somehow some wicked evil has befallen them and God's out of control. God has no control, no investment in what's happening here. This is actually Yahweh's very specific to describe the activity that took place that landed them in a very foreign land. So ready? Here's what he says. Verse 5. He says, I have sent you in exile. Verse 7, he goes on to say, the city where I have sent you into exile And just in case you missed it, third time, he goes on and says, I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So what does this mean? I think, first of all, it it shows us the fact that the hand of God is bigger than any type of what feels like chaotic circumstances in our lives. So here's the thing. Oftentimes, I think there is a tendency for us to think that we have far more control over our lives than what really is the case. So we typically say things like this. Well, why are you living in San Luis Obispo? Or why are you at the job that you're at? Why are you married in the context where you're married? Well, because I made a decision. Or I got you know, a scholarship. Or I'm here because this is where my parents 
landed me or whatever the case is, or someone made a decision, or I'm here because a set of horrible circumstances landed me back in San Luis Obispo, that's why I'm here. Things uh, that were not so good, things that were maybe in some ways actually wicked and evil and terrifying and bad and scary, the fact of the matter is that's, that's more of the superficial narrative. I mean, the fact is that your choices do have consequences. You might have agreed to come to slow to go to school or agreed to get a job here or agreed to get married or have made some choices in your life or circumstances that took place in your life that created circumstances that led you to this particular distinct place in your life right now, whether it's good or bad or somewhere in between. The fact of the matter is, I think if we understand what I think Jeremiah the prophet's saying here, is that really the bigger overarching narrative is that God has sent you. You're here because Yahweh has allowed for you to be here. God created this circumstance. Now, again, there may be some actions that you have done that created or some other actions that are outside of your control that created circumstances, but nonetheless, God is there. God is in control of this thing. I think that's exactly what he's describing here because, again, if you were Jewish living in that culture, you would have all sorts of alternate narratives. Say, well, we're here because this horrible, evil, wicked nation came in and destroyed our land, our temple, took away everything from us, killed my children, did all these horrific things to us, and now we're stuck, we're lost. And the voice of the prophet from Yahweh says, no, 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 I, Yahweh, have sent you here. Do you realize, like, like to the degree, I think, that we embrace that, actually brings about a level of settledness in our heart. And again, it might not solve all of our problems, but what it does is it allows us to recognize that there actually may be another overarching, powerful, more powerful narrative actually in charge of your life than what you tend to think is actually already happening. And I think to the degree that we recognize this or have this attitude of sentness, it, it will change, I think, the way that we approach this concept of, of mission. It will allow us and open up doors to us to recognize that maybe God has us here for another purpose that's way beyond what I initially had, had understood this whole thing to be all about. The second thing is what I would describe as an attitude of settling. Now, what I mean by that is take a look at verses 5 through 6. So the writer basically says this uh, from God. He says, God tells you to now build houses, live, plant gardens, eat, take produce, so on and so forth. Um, in other words, the, the picture that the prophet is painting is that uh, have and adopt a long-term view for your time from here. Don't just see yourself as being here for a short amount of time. Invest in this infrastructure, invest in the city, become a farmer, become a builder, become a, 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 someone that is an entrepreneur that starts businesses, become someone that gets married, have children, raise a family. In other words, become a part of the larger culture and society at large. Now, I see this as God basically saying, adopt this attitude of settling, settle into this thing. Now, that being said, I can imagine some of you guys that might be asking the question, well, how does this play out in our life? Isn't there this idea that a Christian, this world is not our home? And, and I want to address this very quickly. And again, there's a whole lot more time. Uh, if I had a lot more time, I'd spend more time talking about this. But on the one hand, I would say this, that this, this world is not your home. On the other hand, I would say this world is your home. Okay, so some of you right now are thoroughly confused. Let me explain. If I, what I mean by this world, this system, the system of this world, the operating system of this world, let me put it this way, the software that runs this worldly system, 
is not your home. It doesn't reflect Jesus. It doesn't reflect the heart of God. It's destructive. If you adopt it, it will destroy you and crush you. I mean, you can watch any show on Netflix that deals with the wickedness of this world. Narcos, not a great movie I would ever recommend or TV series I would recommend. But that's a great example of just like the wickedness of this world at work within this world. It's evil. It's wicked. It's destructive. And it goes against everything that the heart of God is up to. So this world, in terms of its operating system or software, is not your home. Do not settle in it. Do not embrace it. Do not reflect it, because it will crush you. But this world, what I mean by world, is this physical world, this planet that we live on. This world is our home. How do I know this? Because... First of all, Romans chapter 8 describes this hope that one day God will come back and he will restore this planet that currently resides under bondage because the operating system of which it's operating under is destroying it. It's crushing it. It's ruining it. We live in a world, an actual physical earth that is destroyed underneath its software. But the hope of resurrection, the second reason why I would say this is the greatest thing, because when Jesus died, went into the grave, came out, he came out not as a spirit body. He came out as a physical human being that can eat, that can touch, that can taste, that can feel, that can talk, that can interact. And what Romans 8 says, in the same way that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of all creation, so all who follow Jesus will follow. So the hope is, of, all, of every Christian, the hope is that one day this world that suffers under its destruction and brokenness, God will restore it. That's why the writer John, book of Revelation, he says there will be a new heavens and a new earth that one day replace this one that has currently suffered destruction and brokenness. In other words, you want to think of it this way. This earth that has been badly tortured and bruised and vandalized by the weight, weightiness of sin will one day undergo its own resurrection. And life will be given to this planet and life will be the future. Resurrection was the future of everyone that follows Jesus. Some might say, well, wait a minute. I thought heaven was the future of everyone that follows Jesus. Heaven is the place where God resides. We would call it that way. So if you died right now, you will go to be with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where's God? Well, God resides in, in, in heaven. Some paradisical existence. We don't really know how to describe it, but it's, we would describe it as heaven. But the fact of the matter is, is that the hope of the future, which Jesus even encourages his disciples to pray, he says, when you pray, pray uh, our Father who is in heaven, let, uh, let, let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. The hope of the future is that one day, not that every person that follows God will be removed from this planet to go to some ethereal heaven out there, but that God will bring heaven in its glory and its healing and its wholeness to this planet that suffers under the weightiness of destruction. That's the hope of everyone who follows Jesus. So that being said, that being said, anything that we do in this life to build for hope that invests our life, our time and our energy in this world is not wasted. It's not wasted. So invest. So let me ask you this question. What would it look like if you actually viewed this church, your job, your relationships, your marriage, your friends, your roommates, uh, as a house to be invested in as opposed to a hotel to be taken advantage of. So think about that. Now, a lot of times I talk to people and they're like, well, I'm not going to be here that much longer, and so why get involved in a church or why get involved in a community that I'm not going to be here for much longer? Anyhow, so the fact of the matter is, is that the majority of you guys right now 
um, within the next four to five years will no, lo no longer be on the Central Coast. You won't be able to afford it. The majority of you guys. Now, there may be a small percentage, maybe like, I don't know, up 20%. That might be an exaggeration. But the majority of you guys will no longer be here on the Central Coast. You'll move away. So what that means is that it's, it's easy to look at the fact that, well, I'm not going to be here that much longer. So why would I invest in something that I'm not going to be here that much longer? But again, what would it look like if we actually saw the very place that we're at right now as designed by the hand of Yahweh to say, here's where I put you. I led you here. Make it your home right now. Well, God, I'm only going to be here for nine months. Make it your home for nine months. How would you treat things differently? How would you invest yourself in different ways? Another way to think about this is a big theological word that Christians like to use sometimes, just to sound really nice and smart, is the word incarnational. It just simply means to incarnate oneself, to become part of the fabric of something. This is exactly what Paul would say that Jesus did in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Let each of you look not only upon his own interests, but also upon the interests of others. Which is a call. He's saying, don't be selfish, be other-centered. Think about other people, is what he's saying. Uh, have this mind in you, in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So this mindset of others' focusedness or other centeredness is actually in the mind of Jesus. Is that Jesus is thinking about not so much himself, but thinking about others. And he goes on to say, he says, uh, who though he was God in the form of God, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking upon the form of a servant, being born in likeness of man, he being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And so what Paul's basically stating here, very clearly, is that even God, God could have very easily abandoned this world. I mean, how easy would it have been for you if you were God to basically abandon Eight billion people that are giving you the middle finger. All the time. All the time. How easy would it have been for you to do that? Well, God, rather than abandoning or crushing or destroying, God actually scripts himself in the very narrative. Becomes a human being. Uh, Eugene Peterson describes it this way. God moves into the neighborhood. That's what happened when Jesus was born into a manger, was God became flesh. God took upon himself tangibility, the intangible one, became tangible. The unseen became seen. Why? To suffer on a cross. In other words, God takes upon himself the pain, the brokenness, the wickedness, the consequences of evil and sin upon himself to alleviate that from us who trust in him. So how are we being called into this? Incarnationally. Investment. Give yourself. What does it look like? You say, that's pretty painful, right? It feels painful sometimes. Yes. Sometimes serving others feels like crucifixion. Not literally, of course, but figuratively. It feels painful. It feels like it's extracting life out of me. Yes, that's exactly the point. But that's what it means to give yourself away for the benefit of other people. So number one, uh, an attitude of sentness. Number two, an attitude of settling. Number three, an attitude which seeks the peace of the city. I'll go through this really quickly. Number one, he says in verse seven, I'll just read it. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The word welfare uh, is from the Hebrew word that literally is the word shalom. And uh, it's basically seek the peace, seek the shalom. In other words, seek 
a way to bring the city that's disjointed and broken and has dark areas back to wholeness. Are there dark places in Slow? Totally. Are, are there dark places in your neighborhood? You know. Are there dark places in your workplaces? What about in your families? I mean, think about this. Where are areas around you, around us, that are just crippled by sin, crippled by evil, crippled by darkness? Do you understand what God is saying? That you are salt of the earth, light of the world. Shine brightly in those really, really dark places. And how? He says, seek the peace of those areas by praying for it. So what would it look like if we really were a people that, that saw ourselves on mission as Jesus, to pray, to seek the peace, the welfare, to ask those questions regularly, maybe in your small groups, to ask those questions within your family. How can we be a blessing to San Luis Obispo, to Atascadero, to South County, to other places that God has called us to be? What would it look like for us to actually be a community of people that bring life and blessing and goodness to the area in which we, we have been called? What would it look like? And then finally, um, an attitude which seeks God. And verse, uh, this is where we jump into the last portion, which we'll read. Uh, this might be familiar to some of you. I mean, if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, or you have a godly legacy in your history, meaning grandma, grandpa loved Jesus. I guarantee you at some point, grandma probably had a crochet of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where it says, I know the plans for you, uh, or a teacup at least. So here's what it says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for peace or welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Verse 13, he says this, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This promise is so amazing because really the fact of the matter is that there will be those, no doubt, that were sent in exile to Babylon and lost entirely their identity. They forgot the fact, or maybe they abandoned the fact that they were Yahweh's people. For some of you, this is what it looks like on a practical day. You might move into this area or go to school or move into your fraternity or sorority and like, I'm going to follow Jesus. In my job, in my family, in my neighborhood, in wherever. And somewhere along the way, you drift and you lose your identity. Actually, you don't lose it. You exchange it for a cheaper one. Because it was always happens. And in the midst of that process of losing your identity, you start making compromises. You're giving yourself away in ways that you would have never dreamed of or thought about. That's exactly what it means to lose one's identity. But here's the call from God always is to come back to saying, Seek me, you'll find me, and in finding me, you'll find yourself. Your identity will be renewed as you rediscover who you are in light of who I made you to be. So the call for all of us is to maybe pause and and ask and reflect and ask the question, has there been drift? Has there been a sense where you've lost your identity? Maybe it started out where, you know, you have wanted to follow God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and mind, but somewhere along that process, you drifted. It's always a call to come back to what God calls us to. So in closing, I would say this, that to the degree, in terms of thinking about motivation, how do we do this? 
Because all of this could become nothing more than just a bunch of laws and rules, like go live on mission and go have this great excitement to do big things for God. And the fact of the matter is, for some of you, you'll rise to the occasion and be like, yes, I'm going to go do great things for God. And then somewhere along the line, it'll plateau, and then you'll just fizzle out. But the big issue is how do we truly motivate ourselves in a lasting, transformative type of way? And I would suggest it goes like this. To the degree that you see that Jesus... First and foremost, that Jesus himself, being sent by God, Jesus, talk about sentness, Jesus was sent by God into this world. Not to just simply pass through as a prophet or to proclaim or to speak ideas, but actually to invest himself. So much so that the book of Revelation actually describes on the right hand of God, one who has a body. God in the flesh. It doesn't make sense to me. I, it's one of those mysteries that is mind-blowing more than I think about it. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus now has a physical body. It's probably a way of indicating to the fact that all that have been transformed by Jesus throughout all eternity will recognize the ultimate sacrifice that God paid to redeem and ransom and forgive and wash and welcome your broken lives. On the right hand of God, there's a father. There's, 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 a, there's Jesus in the form of man, in physical body. That to the degree that you see that Jesus was sent by God, he came into this world to dwell among us, he invested his life for his enemies, ultimately seeking our peace, but then never drifting from his father's plan. Why? Because he loves you. To the degree that you see this, and you welcome it, and you let it transform your heart, brings about this desire in your heart that says, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of what God is up to in this world. So let me finish with this final quote I was thinking about as I was writing this down, that really the average American Christianity that's for the most part common within our world typically goes something like this. We ask this question, how does God's plan fit into my life? It's more about how do I accommodate God? <laughs> I want to follow the desires of my heart, I want to build a career, I want to buy a big house, I want to buy a nice car, I want to invest in a family, I want to buy stuff, I want to have money, I want to have influence, and, and, and God's important too, but I'm trying to figure out how do I incorporate God's plan into my life. What's well, American Christianity? But true, uh, Bible following Jesus followers, disciples of Jesus, people who live on mission, they ask a different question, I think the question goes something like this, how does my life ultimately fit into God's plan. Because it's looking at the landscape and saying, this God is so great, so powerful, so mighty, so loving, so welcoming. I want in. How do I enter into that? And this is where it comes back to. Seek me and I'll be found. So it's an invitation. Turn our hearts to seek him. So, why don't we all stand or respond, pray, sing, partake of communion, and we'll wrap this up. Um, as we take of communion, it's a way of reminding us that the broken body of Jesus was symbolized in bread, and he breaks it, gives it to his disciples, and he says, eat this, and you'll be made whole, be brought into this relationship. He takes cup, he pours it out, he says, this is my blood, which has been shed for you, so he draws awareness not only to his broken body, but also the fact that he will shed his blood. He will give his life for his enemies. And he says, 
part participate, come in. And to the degree that we partake and say yes to that, that will reshape our affections and our hearts and transform us. To become people that are actually partnering, saying yes to God. The first way for some of you is to simply say yes to God by asking him to wash you, to cleanse you. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you're far from God, if you've drifted, if you are that person who's lost yourself in this world, to recognize that he's not far. He's near as your breath, saying, yes, Lord, wash me, cleanse me. As you seek him, he'll be found. So let's respond. Let me pray, sing a song. We'll wrap it up. Jesus, thank you for your great love. We open our hearts to you now, and we ask you, God, that you would just bring about transformation in our inside. We want to be people that say yes to you in our lives.